Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, both marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. In our two previous programs, we've explored sea level rise along the nation's marine coasts and falling lake levels in the Great Lakes. Today, we're going to explore a problem that's common to both ocean coastal zones and to the Great Lakes. The problem is overfertilization by nutrients, resulting plankton blooms and dead zones. This combination constitutes one of the most pervasive, persistent, and pernicious problems of our coastal areas. Over-enrichment with nutrients, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus. Fertilizers that are introduced by rivers and streams, by the atmosphere, and by municipal outfalls. These nutrients originate from agriculture, home lawn and garden fertilizers, from human and other animal waste via sewage treatment plants, and from animal feedlots, and also from atmospheric deposition. Fertilizers stimulate plant growth. That's why we use them. But too much fertilizer entering the ocean and the Great Lakes can produce intense blooms of microscopic algae. Sometimes these algal blooms are called harmful algal blooms because the plants produce highly toxic chemicals that can cause, that can cause a variety of serious illness and even death in marine animals and in humans. The pathways to humans is typically through eating shellfish or other seafood contaminated with the toxins. When these intense blooms of algae die, they decompose, exhausting the oxygen in the water, and aquatic animals that can't escape die. Here with me today are two experts on overfertilization of coastal waters, eutrophication and dead zones, Tom Schmid, president of the Texas State Aquarium, and Paul Sandifer, chief science advisor for NOAA's National Ocean Service. Paul, I want to start with you. How common is over-enrichment of our coastal waters? And let's focus on ocean coasts and the coast of the Great Lakes, but not on small inland lakes. And if you want to amplify on anything that I said, please do. Thanks very much, Gary. Uh, first of all, recent coastal surveys of the United States and Europe have found that a staggering 78% of the continental U.S. coastal area and approximately 65% of Europe's Atlantic coast exhibit symptoms of eutrophication. So that means that these impacts you just talked about, they are growing, not decreasing. They're also important in major freshwater areas such as the Great Lakes, which are shared by the United States and Canada and provide drinking water for some 40 million or so people. This eutrophication or over-enrichment with the nutrients can have a number of negative impacts. But two of the most prevalent, and you've already mentioned them, these are the harmful algal blooms and the so-called dead zones or hypoxic zones, places where there's just too little oxygen in the water to support higher life forms. Tom and I will go into some more details on these later, but the bottom line is the heavy use of nitrogen and phosphorus-based fertilizers, plus other sources, is causing major unintended collateral damage via harmful algal bloom and hypoxia in coastal waters and in Great Lakes waters. So Tom, it's, it's clear from what Paul has said that over-fertilization and dead zones are a fairly 
common phenomenon along the nation's ocean coasts and in the Great Lakes. You come from the Gulf of Mexico region, a region that has what has been referred to as the mother of all dead zones. Please describe for us the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and its causes and consequences. Uh, sure, Jerry. Well, as you know, the uh, huge port of the Mississippi River Basin drains from almost 40% of the, of the country. So this is a huge uh, watershed flowing down into the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, you can imagine 600,000 cubic feet per second water entering the Gulf of Mexico. Now, a lot of this moves west and along the continental shelf in the Gulf. And, and again, you can see that's where the location is of this huge bed zone now. So it's a direct result of this activity. And, and this is the second largest dead zone on Earth, is that correct? That is correct. Do we know what the largest is? Paul, any ideas? I think we talked about maybe in the, in the Black Sea or the Mediterranean, perhaps? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't re uh, recall at the moment, but that's something we can, we can look up. The, the, the good news is we're not first. The very bad news is we are second. <laughs> All right, well, that would be a good thing for our viewers to... Uh, to do some Googling and find out what the largest dead zone is. Paul, are there any regional trends, national trends rather, in eutrophication, uh, that is the overfertilization of coastal zones and in the number, size, and duration of dead zones? Are they increasing in intensity, in size, in duration? And if they are, what's the driving force? Well, Jerry, the unfortunate fact is that uh, the number of dead zones is, in fact, increasing all around the United States and around the world. Uh, I think you can see this graphic and uh, represents data from a, uh, from a global assessment by Diaz and Rosenberg. And that paper uh, would give our readers, the uh, our listeners, the idea of, or, or information on what's the work. But they, they show that there's been an astounding increase in the magnitude of the problem uh, globally since 1960, with over 400 estuarine and coastal marine systems affected. In the United States, we have three of the largest dead zones. Ours are the Gulf of Mexico, we've already talked about, also in the Chesapeake Bay, and in Lake Erie of the Great Lakes. And then there are many smaller ones that are also significant, including in some smaller freshwater areas. I think one of the primary drivers in this increase in the number of, of dead zones is the increased coastal population, since we know that the movement to the coast is one of the largest migrations of humans in all of history. Either, please comment. Well, of course, that, that, that is, that is a, a, a part of this, but the biggest thing, I think, is the, uh, is the, the runoff uh in the, the very high use of nitrogen and phosphorus based fertilizers and subsequent runoff to coastal areas all around the world that's the that's the big issue and, and of course that's population driven uh, in, in large part okay right so tom what about in the gulf of mexico is the problem in the gulf stabilized or is it getting better or worse and what are the drivers there well, short term, we've seen some interesting changes, uh, largely as a result of the drought that gripped most of the nation. Uh, the dead zone in the Gulf is actually a little bit smaller this year than they expected. And, and largely, we imagine with less rain, we're getting less runoff, we're getting less nutrients into the Gulf of Mexico. So it is reducing the size of the dead zone. There's also a particularly windy spring and summer along the Gulf Coast region. So that caused more deep water upwelling and, and some increased oxygenation of the water. 
But again, Jerry, these are just temporary minor climate factors. Long term, it's getting worse. But, but I want to, the, the freshwater inflow, that does a couple of things. First of all, the, when you have a drought and there's less water coming in, that means also there are fewer nutrients. But also, if there's less water coming in, you have less stratification of the water column, and now you said there's increased wind mixing. So, of course, both of those come together to help. Comment? Well, that's exactly right. But again, that's a, if you have to look at if you look at this over a 20-year period, you can see that the, the dead zone generally has gotten much, much larger. So the long-term impacts are, are, are much worse than even the, the short-term benefits we're seeing. Okay. Well, well the, the root cause is the same you know, for the, the, per, the creation of these zones around the country and around the world. That is too many nutrients. Do the major sources of these nutrients vary from one region to another? Paul? Well, it, that source or the sources can vary a bit, uh, Jerry, but in most cases, uh, agricultural runoff is, 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 a, is a big player, but there can be uh, sewage pollution, the other things. And there are cases where the, the uh, causative factor or the driver may be something else entirely. And Tom mentioned uh, uh, coastal upwelling uh, in some cases where that can, can help. In other cases, uh, where there's already some stratification of the water column, you get this uh, nasty nutrient-rich deep water coming up into certain areas, and this may be nutrient-rich, and it may also be oxygen-deficient. So you, you get a problem caused by something other than uh, than direct runoff uh, of, of nutrients. Bottom line, though, is, is, is the like in the Gulf of Mexico, you, we've got a runoff problem. Uh, it is a, a, a huge, uh, it, it is a recipient of a, of a huge volume of water, and it's associated uh, a burden of, of pollutants from across the country. Uh, and much of the land that it drained was originally wetlands that have been over the last hundred years or more turned into farmland. And after conversion to farmland, it can no longer serve as a filter or reservoir to, for nutrients. So a huge amount of that, that runoff goes into small creeks and, and tributaries and eventually ends up in the, in the Mississippi. And Tom has noted that uh, this past summer it was uh, somewhat smaller than, than predicted and one of the smaller on, on record. But it's still quite large, and putting it in perspective, even smaller, the dead zone was roughly the size of the state of New Jersey. So still a, a very significant issue. Okay, you had mentioned that uh, Lake Erie, the Gulf of Mexico, and Upper Chesapeake Bay are three of the, the largest. In Upper Chesapeake Bay, that's driven primarily by agriculture in the drainage basin of the Susquehanna River. In the, the case of the Gulf of Mexico, it's driven by agriculture throughout much of the, the Midwest United States. What's the primary driver in Lake Erie? Is that more sewage treatment plant point sources, or, or is, is that also agricultural runoff? It's a combination, but I would say uh, uh, probably more uh, more agricultural than than uh, than others. But it, it is a combination. Okay. Are there any technological fixes to the problem of too many nutrients getting into our coastal waters? Uh, well, I, I think one of the one of the really interesting technologies that we're seeing farmers use more and more now is GPS to help them determine exactly the amount of nutrients uh, fertilizers that need to put on their crops. So, I think using this technology is allowing them to really concentrate the nutrients where they need to be, 
and, and eliminating an excess of uh, nutrient runoff. So this is a big impact. The other um, important um, uh, mitigation effort is, is organizations now are working with farmers to really determine which farms are, are being the, are producing most of the nutrients. In other words, there's, like many things, a few number of farmers that are producing a significant amount of runoff and trying to pinpoint those and then work specifically with those farmers to mitigate the, the runoff. And Jerry, there is something called the Mississippi River Gulf of Mexico Watershed Nutrient Task Force. It is also known much more simply as the Hypoxia Task Force. This is a body consisting of five federal agencies and 12 states that border the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. And it's working very hard uh, to, to help implement uh, the kinds of technology that, that Tom just mentioned. Each of the states involved is developing a, its own nutrient reduction strategy with targets of eventually uh, reducing by 20 to 45 percent the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus uh, reaching the Mississippi River and, and moving downstream. And that's by incorporating into these state strategies uh, the newest technologies, uh, the newest scientific methods of, of managing uh, fertilizer use and reducing runoff from the, from the crop level. Okay, clearly farmers don't want to use any more fertilizers than they have to because they're expensive. So they can use GPS and, and um, have precision applications of fertilizers where they will do the, the most good. They can also relate it to different kinds of crops, different times of the year when fertilizers are most effective. Also, probably in the not too distant future, we will be having more genetically modified crops which do not require as much fertilizer or as much water. And since both the, the absence, the lack of, of fresh water in much of the world is a major issue and the fact that we have these serious coastal problems, I think there will be a, a greater move to genetically modified organisms. To me, it's a, it's a very important public issue because there, there's a lot of public opposition to it that stems largely from misunderstanding. What, what do the two of you think? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right, Jerry. I think we're, technology is, is helping us solve many of the, the serious environmental issues that we're seeing around the world. And, and as, we get, as we get better designed crops, they're better, they're better water tolerant, they're better drought tolerant. And uh, I think a lot of this technology, a lot of the research is going into to farm studies now Will, will help. Now, there's still you know, more than we need to do, but I think it's certainly a trend in the right direction. I think it's going to be a lot of advancement in the agricultural sciences, uh, both in the, in the crops themselves and in the application uh, and, and fertilizer management technology. On the NOAA side, uh, we're working uh, as well to, to develop a more of, uh, extensive and effective means of, of uh, forecasting, predicting uh, ecological events like harmful algal blooms and, and hypoxia uh, on a national basis so that so that we can identify the hotspot areas better and provide adequate warning for the public to be prepared. So, And in the short term, at least, so, so managers have more precise information uh, to fix these problems uh, than in the in the longer term. And we're building on, on NOAA's capacity in, in weather and climate prediction in order to develop the modeling uh, and, and other basic uh, technologies to do this. But the bottom line is we'd be able to give a lot better uh, warning uh, ahead of time of, of, of events so people can be prepared to deal with them. Again, on the long term, the idea is to, to, keep, to see where these problems keep 
coming up again and again, like we see in the Gulf of Mexico, and then be able to take remedial action to, to deal with that problem eventually uh, solve it. Okay, so clearly uh, using fewer uh, fertilizers, less fertilizer is a major issue. Also using less water because throughout the world, 70% of all of the water that we use goes to agriculture. And as population has risen, pressures on fresh water have risen. Our fresh water use in has increased about twice as rapidly as population. And we have the same amount of water on this planet that we had four billion years ago. And in fact, it's the same water that has been recycled thousands and thousands of times. So coming back though to, to the Gulf and the drainage of two thirds of the United States and some of our most productive agricultural lands. We want to reduce the amount of fertilizer. Can we reduce it without affecting agricultural production? You've both partially answered that, but I want you to reinforce that. Tom, can we do it without affecting production? Well, I, I think we can. You know, what we need to do is, is work with the farmers and, again, let them know that they've got to get the precise amount of uh, fertilizer on the crops and reduce the amount that's getting run off. Now, with the GPS technology, as I mentioned, they used to be able to track the sweeps that farmers would do up and down the fields, and sometimes there would be a two, three, four-foot overlap. With GPS technology, sometimes it's now a one-inch overlap, so tremendously more efficient. So I think that you know it, it saves money for them and it's better for the environment. So I absolutely think that's going to that's going to continue to get better. Paul, do you want to add to that? Uh, I agree with with Tom and, and Charlie, and also think that there is a a huge focus within the U.S. Department of Agriculture and, and within states uh, to work with farmers to identify those fields that have the, the biggest runoff problem and then figure out ways uh, to reduce uh, that runoff. In some cases, it's having a vege vegetated uh, 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 buffer zones, other cases, other kinds of technologies that can you know, be put in place to keep those uh, any excess fertilizer from, from running off the field and reaching uh, waterways. That's that's the bottom line here is to keep the the, uh, the fertilizer that is needed for the crops on the crop. I think that as these technologies mature, you'll see that we're able to do uh, a, a, an equally as good or a better job of actually producing crops with a lot less collateral damage downstream. I think it's very clear that the overfertilization of our coastal waters, the plankton blooms, and the dead zones, these are a very serious problem. How might climate change affect these issues? Will climate change be our friend or our foe in terms of coastal eutrophication? Paul, give us a national view. Thanks again, Jerry. I, I want to point out that uh, in addition to the dead zones, eutrophication has been implicated in the increase in harmful algal blooms. I'll talk about those in just a moment. We've got a map here of, uh, from the Harkle Alga Bloom site, supported by NOAA and maintained by the Woodhole Oceanographic Institution, and you see the breadth of the problem. Almost every coastal area, the Great Lakes, and even small bodies of water, like all coastal lagoons, are subject to periodic blooms that produce uh, the algae and their the toxins that can cause serious uh, illnesses. And so there, there are many different kinds of algae. Nasty toxins they produce and the frequency, the geographic extent, the location, the intensity, even the number of uh, species are increasing, uh, not only in the U.S., but globally. Uh, so so this, is, this is one of the cases where we not only get better reporting, we're actually seeing more and more of these things. 
And in the case of the harmful algae, most of the evidence thus far indicates that climate change is likely to make the problem worse. Part of this is warming waters um, being more conducive to the growth of the microorganisms. Uh, part of it is, is due to, to increased instances of intense rainfall, which causes the huge pulses of nutrient-laden laden waters uh, coming into uh, into coastal waters. So you have the uh, essentially an increase in the growing season from the long, the more warm water, and then the uh, the potential for more nutrients uh, getting into the system to to feed that longer growing system. So climate change in this case is not often. Same thing is, is to a to a degree is is true with with regard to dead zones because warmer waters will hold less oxygen. So the, the problem now can get worse as the, the waters are less able to hold oxygen. And I think the other aspect of, of warming that works against us is the fact that as you warm the upper part of the water column, it increases the stability of the water column. It takes more energy to mix it, to overturn it, and so we can er exacerbate uh, these issues. Tom, what about in the Gulf? Uh, do scientists expect the dead zone in the Gulf will get worse with climate change? Will it increase in extent, persist longer over the year? Well, I, I think I think it I think it will exacerbate the problem. As you all mentioned, um, the um, you know the, the rising temperatures has a lot of impact on seawater. You know, one of the other impacts is uh, lower dissolved oxygen. So as water gets warmer, it has water has less ability to, to, to be saturated with oxygen. So you see the oxygen levels go down. Now that's already a major problem with the dead zone. So if you increase the temperature, that's a, that's a, that's another negative factor that's going to increase the hypoxia event. So. Yeah, all the the arrows all point in a in a in unfortunately a, a, a negative direction when we look at the long term impact of climate change in these zones. Well, while eutrophication over fertilization has been increased as a result of human activities, we know that it's also a natural phenomenon in lakes and in some estuaries. And before concerns about climate change became so prominent and may have nudged eutrophication aside. I think eutrophication would have been at or near the top of concern of most coastal scientists. And I think it probably still belongs there. I guess I would ask the two of you, where on your list of concerns for the coastal areas of the country would overfertilization and dead zones be? Near the top, in the middle, near the bottom? What do you think? Well, there is a call for me. It would be uh, uh, pretty much uh, near the top, not at the top, but certainly well above the middle. And if you're thinking about all the issues associated with with uh, nuclear pollution, the dead zones, and the increased uh, in harmful algal blooms and their uh, ability to directly impact humans, I would say yes. This has to be uh, fairly high up on my list. Tom, what about you? Yeah, and I agree with Paul, like particularly in the Gulf of Mexico, where the fishery is so important, a significant amount of all the seafood that's, that's, uh, that's fished in our waters in North America come from the Gulf of Mexico, and, and these dead zones are areas that are almost completely void of important fishery species. So just the economic impact alone is significant, which, which in my view then would rank it as a pretty high priority point. I would agree, and it comes every year, and this, it's also true of the dead zone in, a, in Upper Chesapeake Bay, Western Long Island Sound, so I would, would rank it very high. 
Now, this program, we represent a network of aquariums called the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network. 25 aquariums, 23 in the U.S., one in Canada, and one in Mexico. And I, Tom, I'll start with you. Do, you. do you think this topic would make a good exhibit that a number of our aquariums should work together to bring to our public? You know, that's a really interesting idea, Jerry, because we share, um, you know, we each have different populations that we serve, but there's a tremendous overlap. But, for example, around the Gulf, we have a number of uh, uh, coastal ecosystem learning centers. And so being able to have a common message that we're sharing with visitors from Texas, from Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Florida, uh, I, I, these are all important issues, and the Gulf of Mexico impacts all of us, uh, certainly around the Gulf, but around the nation as well. So. I think there could be a lot of interest uh, among the learning center network, and I think you know we talked, you know, we mentioned that we demonstrated some of these uh, visuals during our presentation today. It's really impactful when you begin to appreciate with, with high definition photos and modeling how in, how large these dead zones are. You know, Paul uh, Paul gave a great example of how large one in the Gulf of Mexico. It's, it's difficult sometimes for folks to appreciate that, but but, but a, a really impactful, compelling modeling exhibit. Um, or, or rendering, uh, I, I think, to, to really get folks to be to begin to give more serious thought to this problem. And I think in, with the Mississippi, we've got one of our member institutions up near the headwaters of the Mississippi in Dubuque, Iowa, the Mississippi River, River Museum and Aquarium. We would want to bring them into this because that, that's where the story really begins. And I think if you looked around the country, we could find an aquarium. Certainly, we have the National Aquarium in Baltimore, where the Chesapeake Bay story could be told. And I think if it's true uh, on the West Coast, where the, the causes of these dead zones is probably quite different. But we've got a number of aquariums here in California. So I hope that the two of you will, will join, and maybe we could push forward to try to develop this story. I want to thank Paul Sandifer and Tom Schmid for joining me on this edition of Coastal Conversations. And I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. I hope you will join us for our next program when we explore the topic of increasing the resilience of coastal communities, both human and natural. And I will be joined by Margaret Davidson, the Acting Director of NOAA's Office of Ocean and Coastal Resource Management, and we will also have another expert with us on that program. Thank you.